Amen. Well, good morning. Well, if you're like me and you're a normal human being, you started listening. Wow. You started, you started listening to Christmas music on Thanksgiving Day. I don't know, for those of you who follow Pastor Jim and his leadership, if that's you, he'll be here next weekend. Uh, but we start the Christmas season, right, whether it's Thanksgiving Day, which is the official beginning, or before then. Uh, but we love to listen to what? Christmas music, right? All the different songs, all the different, you know, maybe old traditional ones. Maybe there's uh, pop culture songs that we love to listen to, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and all the different things. Uh, there's another Christmas song out there sung by one of the most famous, really the, the guy that started rock and roll, and that is Elvis Presley, right? Anybody know that song? I'll have a blue Christmas without you. And I'm saying that out loud, and I'm hoping that he actually did write that song. I'm pretty sure I saw that. Uh, but that Christmas song, right, it's really depressing if you listen to it. It's all about the fact that you're not going to be with your loved one anymore on this Christmas season. Right? And I think all of us know this maybe in the back of our head, but the Christmas season itself right? All the advertising, all of the decorations, all of the messages that you might hear from churches or people online, everything is focused on this idea of hope and celebration and be merry and be bright. It's about joy. It's about just kind of the experience of the season, right? Uh, a couple of days ago, my wife and I were just complaining about Michigan, go figure, and how we were tired of the gray weather and the wet weather, Right? We just need it to do what? We need it to snow. Because when it snows, it makes the cold that much more bearable, right? We're so excited when it's actually going to snow. And then we're all probably looking at the forecast saying, okay, come on, please, let's have a white Christmas. It'll make it that much more magical. It'll be amazing. And then by the end of January, all of us are going to be saying what? Stop snowing. We're tired of the snow. Please let, it, let the sun be out. We were doing some stuff around the house, and uh, I bought a uh, solar-powered lamppost, right? And the instructions say, for optimal use, have two full days of sun to charge the solar panel. <laughs> I bought it three weeks ago. <laughs> but yesterday, yesterday, I looked out the window, and the sun was shining, and as I typically do, my wife asked me to do one thing, and I was like, oh, I'll do that thing later, but first I'm going to go do this thing. And I take my son, we go out there, we get it all set up, and it's sunny for an hour. And then it's gray again. Right, but like, we love the idea of snow, we love the idea of the songs, the Christmas lights, the decorations, all these things, because it creates the feeling in the experience of Christmas, Right? And like I said, in the back of our minds, though, I think we're all aware that there's another layer to the Christmas story of why is it that we're even celebrating Christmas to begin with? Why are we even celebrating Christmas? The reason why we're celebrating Christmas is because Jesus came, right? Jesus is born. But why did Jesus have to come into this world? Why did Jesus come and live in this place? And as we really slow down and we start to really think about that layer and that thread of the Christmas season, what we begin to realize is the depth and the emotion 
and the reality that there's great need for all of us to celebrate Christmas. Because there's something in us, there's something in the world around us, there's something about living in this place that meant that God had to send his son to live a perfect life, to be sinless, to be born without sin, and ultimately to sacrifice his life on a cross. For what purpose? Somebody needed to be punished. Somebody needed, we needed to have punishment and consequences for our sin. But God, in his great love for us, didn't want us to have to endure that punishment. So he sends his son to endure the punishment that all of us in this room today deserve. That's the celebration of Christmas. And this Christmas season, as we've been walking through as a church, walking through Uh, the birth of Jesus through Matthew chapter two, we're coming to a point in the story that I'm gonna guess that if you have kids, you've been to lots of Christmas programs at your kids' schools, right? If you've been in church for a long time, you've seen lots of Christmas productions and plays and even sermon series. But I'm, (coughs) excuse me, but I'm gonna make a guess that this aspect of the story is not really highlighted and characterized very well. And it's the story of what happened after Jesus was born And it's the story of the response to Jesus' birth by people who were not excited that he was around, of people who were not excited that the Messiah, that the King, that the Savior had come into the world. It's the story of Herod, and it's the story of the pain and the evil and the oppression that we see surrounding Jesus' birth. So what I want to do, I want to pray And this is one of those sermons where I don't know how it always lands, but I get to have all the really fun sermons. When you leave here today, you're not going to be depressed. You may be weighty, but hopefully you'll be weighty with a sense of hope and a sense of thanksgiving and a sense of gratitude because in Jesus, our mourning can turn to hope. Let me pray for us again, please. God, we need you. God, I need you. And Lord, as we look at your word and as we contemplate the realities of our own lives and as we look at the story of your son's birth, God, help us to be honest and real with ourselves. Help us to be honest and real with the world around us. And Father, help us to see Jesus truly as our Savior, to see Jesus truly as our Lord. And so, Father, as we contemplate and think on you, as we look to you, and we ask you for guidance and help. God, would you be faithful and would you answer us? Lord, be with us this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Let's stop right there. We learned about King Herod over the last two weeks or so and kind of understanding who this ruler is. He's over, he's the king of Jerusalem, kind of the king of Israel at this point in time. He wasn't necessarily a ruthless king up until this point. Before he was a little bit kind of odd, kind of an odd duckling, but he was kind of harmless and he was just kind of eccentric in the way that he ruled Israel. 
And we'd seen earlier in the story, he had heard about these wise men coming into Jerusalem, trying to look for and find this Messiah who had been prophesied to have been born, this king that would come and liberate the Jews, that would come and be the savior of the nation of Israel. And as a king, he felt threatened, as anybody would feel. What, this person is here to usurp me? This person, this child of prophecy is being born? And his response is, once he learns that the wise men, because they were supposed to come back, after they found the Messiah, they were supposed to go back to Herod and tell him, hey, this is where the child is. And after he learned that the wise men did not return back to him, he went and he found where they had been in this little town of Bethlehem, and he sent his troops to murder boys under the age of two. Now, Bethlehem wasn't a giant city. Historians believe that maybe what we're talking about here is about 20 to 30 babies that were slaughtered. And Bethlehem was also not a large town, a small town, but they also lived life in a very different way than we do. They were always out and about. They didn't hang out in their homes. They didn't pull into their garage and shut the garage so that the neighbor doesn't see them. They were always out each and every day, working, cleaning, whatever it is that they were doing on their daily tasks. And let's for a moment, let's imagine, kind of picture ourselves in that small town, maybe cobblestone, roadway, all the unique smells that are there, and then the sound of footsteps, of marching, of troops walking down the road, going door to door, looking for any infant male under the age of two and then killing them. Do you think it was a quiet night that night in Bethlehem? No. Screams, cries, wailing, insanity, all of this commotion and loudness and pain and grief being expressed and communicated in the entire community feeling it. It wouldn't have been an isolated thing. Everybody in that town would have known. Everybody in that town would have been talking about it. Everybody in that town would feel the horrendous act that was done in their town. This event is part of the Christmas story. We don't celebrate it. We don't really highlight it that much. But it's something that I think Matthew intentionally kept in the story. Because what we begin to see is we really, as you walk through the gospel of Matthew, Matthew was an educated Jew. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the Torah. He knew the stories of God from centuries before. And through inspiration by the Holy Spirit, as he was writing down his eyewitness account, he's including key details to help us, but more specifically to help the current hearers, the other Jews of his day, to make the connection that Jesus truly is the prophesied Messiah that we've heard about for centuries, that we've heard about from the prophet Isaiah, that we've heard about from the prophet Jeremiah, that we've heard about in the Psalms from David and from Solomon, that we've heard about since time began. And Jesus is also this better image and better picture of these Old Testament heroes that the Jews would have known about. 
Can you think of an Old Testament character, an Old Testament individual who also was part of an event where children were massacred? Moses. The same thing occurred in Moses' time where Egypt decided this is what we have to do. And Moses' parents, in a desire to keep him safe, puts him in a basket, puts him on the river, and sends him away. So Matthew is not just trying to include this story for shock and awe value, but instead it helps draw in not only the Jews of the day, but also for us today to recognize there's something significant here and why it's still in our scriptures. And I think for us, as we think about this moment, it causes us to have to face the reality of evil, right? The Christmas season for many of us today, we kind of create our own bubbles, right? We redecorate our homes. Maybe in your office place, you decorate your office, right? You change your normal patterns of life from Thanksgiving until Christmas, and it's just a little bit different, right? Maybe you listen to Christmas music every morning on the way to work. Maybe you go out and you do special festive things. Go look at Christmas lights. Go cut down a tree. Go do all of these traditions and these things. And it creates this Christmas season that kind of has its own little bubble. And sometimes what we tend to do in the Christmas season is kind of go dark on what's going on in the world around us. But this reality of evil is always there. It's always there. All you have to do is turn on the news and you will see what's going on not only in our nation, but in nations all across the world. Maybe for some of you here today, maybe you have your own turmoil and your own reality of evil that you're facing in your family. Maybe there's some level of grief and sorrow that you're walking into this Christmas season with, knowing that on Christmas Day this year, it's going to feel so different, and I am not excited about it. Because you're going to wake up, and your spouse isn't there. You're going to wake up, and your parents aren't there. You're going to wake up and realize this is the year that my kids are at their other parents' house. Like if we're honest with ourselves, for the Christmas season, it's not always merry and bright. There's hardship, there's pain. Maybe things that we do of our own account or maybe things that have been done towards us or towards our family. This reality of evil is how Jesus came into the world. The world wasn't a nice, peaceful place, just waiting for Jesus to show up. It was a place where rulers, in their fear, make a decision to go and slaughter children. This is when Jesus comes in. This is when Jesus comes on the scene, is in the midst and in this place of great evil. If you were with us last summer, we went through the book of Lamentations, in the summertime. At first, it was a little bit hard for me to grasp that we were going to study Lamentations when for us in Michigan, we so look forward with great joy to the summer because the snow has finally melted. It's a little warmer and we get to be outside and enjoy life. 
But as a church, we chose to focus on this book of Lamentations. And what we discovered as we walked through it over about six to eight weeks was what it means for a believer to actually lament, right? This word lament is not a word that we use often in our normal vocabulary. It's not something that you maybe talk about often at work, like, oh, I'm just lamenting the Detroit Lions this morning. That's not gonna happen tomorrow, I promise. They're gonna do good today, right? But this word lament, it's an old word. And what it conveys really is kind of this depth and this engagement with grief. It can be an engagement with grief that is brought on by your own actions. It can be an engagement with grief of something that has happened to you. But to lament means that you embrace the grief, the sorrow, and the pain, but you do so in a very particular way. And this is kind of what we see here in Matthew chapter 2. And what Matthew is kind of trying to highlight for us in this story is there's these movements of lament, this movement of emotion that can occur or that is occurring. And for us this Christmas season, it's our opportunity to also be real with ourselves and say, is there a movement of emotion that I need to experience this Christmas? Is it okay with me or is it okay with God that I'm not looking forward to Christmas Day? Is it okay that I'm not looking forward to being with my family? Because there's a lot of hard things that we're gonna have to talk about and discuss. So this role of lament, again, lament is engaging and dealing and facing our grief and our sorrow, but it's doing so with the mindset that as I engage and as I deal with it, I'm going to be turning my eyes to Jesus. I'm not just gonna stay in this place of grief and sorrow, but instead as I'm experiencing, as I'm honest with myself and I'm honest with how I'm feeling, I'm going to take those emotions and I'm gonna turn them towards Jesus. And I'm gonna be really honest and real with him. Why did you let this happen to my wife? Why did you let this happen to my family? Why can't we afford a good Christmas for our family this year? Why did you allow me to lose my job? God, why are you allowing hardship after hardship after hardship after hardship to occur this year? Why? In culture today, when it comes to grief and sorrow and kind of like the human psychology of all of it, there's lots of different ways that culture kind of instructs us on how to deal with it. The easy way to deal with it is live in a world of distractions, right? Pull out your phone, pull out your iPad, pull out whatever other device that you have and just binge watch Netflix. It'll be a great night. Or you know what, just get on social media and all you need to do is just spend hours scrolling through it and just kind of suppress really what you're feeling. Or you know what, you just need to go and you need to engage in this other activity over here that will just kind of distract you from actually dealing with the emotions that you're feeling. Or you know what, maybe you just need to go and take some medication. Because if you take the medication, your emotions aren't gonna be so bad. And let the medication be your savior. Now all these things, medication, the entertainment, the distractions, hear me when I say this clearly, those things in and of themselves aren't bad. They're not bad, 
But when you turn to those things as being the solution and the way to handle and get over your grief or your sorrow or your pain, that's when it takes a wrong turn. Because those things in and of themselves will not help you. All they do is they keep you in this cul-de-sac of despair where you continue to stay in this place and you're not really dealing with the emotions that you have. And this is where Jesus is. Jesus is looking at you and he's saying, I see and I hear and I know how you're feeling right now. Trust me, you can say all that you want to say to me. I can handle it. Let me walk you through life. So this role of lament, how do we see this in the scriptures? Jump back with me to Matthew chapter two. Look at verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So what Matthew was doing here, again, Matthew knows who's going to be listening to this letter being read out loud. Okay, Matthew knows who's going to read this letter eventually one day. And for us, what we see is Matthew is drawing the connection with the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet of Israel, and what he does in his book, which is in the Old Testament, is he records and writes down his own emotion and his own prophecies that he's hearing from God about what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. In the nation of Israel, what's happening in Jeremiah's time is that the Babylonian Empire is invading the region. And they go and they sack Jerusalem and they spread every Jew out of the city and out of that region and they send them out. They're persecuted, they're hunted, they're terrorized. And the Babylonian Empire moves in, sets up shop and rules over this place. Rachel, who is being uh, mentioned here in Jeremiah, this is from Jeremiah chapter 31, by the way. Jeremiah 31, Rachel being a wife of Jacob, this whole idea of her weeping over her children. What Jeremiah is trying to do is show Israel are those children. And she's weeping because they are in, under so much persecution. They're under so much pain. They're under so much um, hardship. And she refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And then if you're in Jeremiah 31, look with me. It should be on the screen, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. This role of lament, it's meant to be the opportunity for you to weep, to be tearful, to be upset, to face the emotion that you have. But also as you turn towards Jesus, being willing to listen to him when he says, hey, weep no more, shed no more tears. There will be a reward. There will be this emergence of hope. Listen to me, wait for me. And it's in this emergence of hope. It's in this voice when maybe you feel like you're kind of stuck in this cycle where everything in your life revolves around the pain that you feel, right? 
But as Jesus speaks and as you are engaging and you're honest with the Lord and you're telling him how you feel and you're telling him the pain that you're experiencing, if you listen, he'll tell you, okay, I hear you. You don't have to shed more tears. I know your pain. There will be something for you over here. Walk with me. Let's make progress forward in life. You guys like superhero movies? You know those moments in those movies whenever like um, there's some kind of moment in the movie where all of the good guys are like, they're about to get defeated. They're about to be, you know, overrun by, you know, the enemy or whatever. But then all of a sudden there's this glimmer of hope, right? One of the best portrayals of this is in Lord of the Rings, okay? Any J.R. Tolkien fans? Okay, wow, we need to read more people, okay? Um, it's the school teacher who said he's a fan too, by the way. So it's a, um, so in J.R. Tolkien, in the Peter Jackson movie, um, not Return of the King in the Two Towers, Gandalf the White says, look for me on the fifth day. Look to the east, right? It's the Battle of Helm's Deep. All the bad guys are storming the keep. They're storming the castle. And they're, the elves and the men are being overrun. And then all of a sudden, in the movie itself, you got to watch it, turn the volume up really loud. But all of a the sudden, there's a moment where the music swells up. And then this guy rides up on a white horse and he's on the top of his hill. And then the sun shines bright behind him. And then it's this massive army, this massive cavalry comes down and saves the day. That moment in that movie still gives me goosebumps every time I watch it. Because that's what Jesus does with us. Jesus arises and appears on that hill. And says, I know you feel this way. I know you feel defeated. I know things look so bleak and dark in this moment. But look up and see that I am coming. That your rescuer is here. That your deliverer is here. Maybe for some of us here this morning, maybe you need one of those moments. Maybe you need that emergence of hope. And the only way you can have that emergence of hope is to ask yourself, where are my eyes looking? Are my eyes looking at me? Are my eyes continuing to stay focused on my pain and the grief and the sorrow and the hardship and all these things all around me? And I'm feeling overwhelmed and I don't know what to do with this and I just don't know if I really want to do this anymore and it's just so hard. <sighs> or are your eyes looking up? And do you see Jesus on a white horse with the sun blazing behind him and a soundtrack swells up around you and it reminds you he's here. He told me he was coming on the fifth day and he's here. And I'm, I don't know what I feel, but I know that he's here. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And I think if we're honest with ourselves in our celebration of this Christmas season, it's one of those unique things. When you embrace how dark, how painful, perhaps how sinful 
you really are? When it's in that moment that you recognize your depravity and how there's no good thing really about you, but yet God in his love for you still sends his son on that white horse and says, I am coming for you. I told you I would be there and I'm there and I'm coming for you. It's one of these things where we have to embrace the reality of our need to make the goodness of Jesus be what it truly is. And that's our hope. Turn with me back to Jeremiah 31, verse 17. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. There's hope. In our lament, as we face our grief, as we face our pain, as we choose to not continue to look at our own heaviness and weightiness, but instead we turn our eyes to Jesus, knowing that there's hope, knowing that he's there at the top of the hill, and that we don't have to climb the hill to him, but he comes down the hill to us in our darkness and in our pain and in our sorrow. That promise of his return is there. Look with me at Matthew chapter 2. I know we're going back and forth. Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 20. Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. To catch you up to speed, Herod commits the atrocious acts in the town of Bethlehem, kills all of these boys. Joseph, in a dream, hears from God that says, take your child, take your wife, go to Egypt and wait. So he gets them up, they leave, right? If you're a parent, right, can you imagine having to pick up your newborn or your one-year-old and having to flee your home because there are people intent on killing your child? I don't think they're like, okay, well, I heard in a dream, we gotta go to Egypt, so let's go check it out. I hear they got pointy things there that look like big triangles. Let's go see it, right? They're not going with this like flippant attitude. They're going with concern and anxiety and weightiness and like, what is happening? Why is God showing up in a dream and talking to me and telling us to leave? So they leave. And then Joseph has another dream. And in that dream, the Lord appears again and says, the one who wanted to kill your child is dead. Return. So they start to make their way back to Bethlehem. And it says here in verse 21 or 22, but when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Again, in this moment where God speaks to the father, God speaks to Joseph through dreams and says, yes, you're going to return. Yes, there is danger here. Go to this other place and be at peace there. For all the people that heard about the Messiah being born, for all the people that heard about 
the king arriving on this earth, right? Because there were shepherds, there were wise men, there were other people more than likely in the town of Bethlehem who were heard and saw all of these people and all the commotion about this baby that was born. Then all of a sudden there was this event of all these babies being killed and no one ever seeing Mary or Joseph or Jesus again. What, what kind of rumor mill do you think started in the town of Bethlehem at this point? Our king is dead. The Messiah has been killed. We think he's been killed. We haven't seen them anymore. We don't know where they are. All hope is lost. Everything is for naught. But yet, when we look in the Old Testament and we look at what was prophesied in Isaiah about the origin of where Jesus would be from and what he would be called a Nazarene, all of this is part of God's ultimate plan. Not only to help his people, the Jews, to understand the connection that everything that the prophets have spoken about centuries before is actually realized in the person of Jesus, but also for us today to recognize that Jesus' birth burst through the darkness, and it still does today. You know, we've been doing this holiday stroll, and one of the things I told our staff was, we, I have no idea what this is going to look like. No idea. It could be a giant flop or it could be a really great success. Somebody said, well, what's successful? And I said, I honestly don't know what's successful is in this event. But when you go and you start to look at the prayer tags, which in our prayer room, all, all the tags from the last two weeks, they should be up on display in there for you to go and not to gossip to yourself, but to go and actually pray for people. But when you start to read those prayer tags, it helps you to see the reality of evil and the reality of a broken world that people live in. One little boy wrote on a prayer tag, pray for my mom, that she gets better and pray that she gets money so she can come see me. Pray for my wife who has cancer. Pray for our children that they can get pregnant. Pray for my dad who lost his job. Pray for my neighbors who are going through a health crisis. The majority of the prayers on there are dealing with the reality of the hardships of this world. And if that 100-year-old barn, decorated with Christmas lights, with live Christmas music playing, if that could be an avenue for somebody to actually write down what they're feeling and to tell God how they really feel, and what they're scared about, what they're afraid of. I think that makes that a, a success. Because as a church, we want to not be afraid of our emotions. We want to not be afraid of our sorrow and our grief. We want to embrace it. But we don't embrace it just to be able to say, this is how hard my life is. We embrace it to say, this is how hard my life is, but Jesus is on the top of that hill and I see him riding down to me, and I'm gonna go meet him in the middle. So this Christmas season, it might be blue for some of you, and that's okay. 
but for all of us. Let's go in with that deeper layer when we sing the Christmas songs, when we wake up Christmas morning, when we're here at our Christmas Eve services and we're lighting our candle and we're singing Silent Night. Let's allow the weightiness of Christmas, the weightiness of Jesus' birth to truly help us in our morning to turn towards hope. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. God, sometimes it's hard to understand. And sometimes, Lord, it gives more questions than answers. But God, thank you that you interact with us. Thank you that you ask us to come to you, that you ask us to address you, that you ask us to engage with you. God, thank you that you're not distant. Thank you that you're with us in every detail of our life, in our relationships, in our work. And God, we're grateful for this Christmas season. We're grateful for the snow. God, would you help us this week in our devotion to you, in our relationship with you? Would you help us just simply know how to worship you well? Give us the words to say that communicates the truth of what we feel. And God, give us a moment, whether it's early in the morning, whether it's a phone call with a friend, whether it's walking outside through the snow, whatever it may be, would you help us just to commune with you and to feel your presence with us? And God, we want to celebrate you next weekend. We want to celebrate your son and help us to do so with a weightiness, with a heart of gratitude for how much you love us. God, you are so good to us. And thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your promises that you give us. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.